And when we look at the story of Passover, we are reminded that the darkness that Israel is brought out of is in fact a darkness that God originally brought. There are 10 plagues that the book of Exodus begins with in its initial chapters. Once we've learned the story of Moses and we're reminded of where they're at. We're going to look at those plagues today and why God sent them. When God sent them, he referred to them as wonders, miracles. The Hebrew term there can mean miracle, wonder, or sign. He sent them to get a message. Do you ever hear that old BG song, I'm trying to get a message to you? That's you today, friend. Jesus is saying, I'm just trying to get a message to you. And it's of my love. But you keep looking at other things. And the fear that you feel. And the darkness that you're in. And the anxiety that grips you. And the troubles that shake you. If that's what I have to use to get you to look to me, then that's what I'll do because I'm just trying to get a message to you. And the message is, your life is hidden in me. I've not turned away from you. But when you turn away from me, you turn into the dark. And since you can't see it, I'll show it to you. I'll show you the dark. I'll show you your fear. I'll show you your sin so that then you'll see me high and lifted up, the light that extinguishes the dark, the freedom that banishes the fear, the love that forgives all your sin, the life that you have in me, Jesus says, is my life breathing in you. The patience of Passover is about you and I having patience to prevail in what God is calling us to today. We're going to pray, and I'm going to ask the guys in the booth to bring up my slides as we do. We're looking today at Exodus chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you can open to it. And as you open your Bible, open your heart. Lord, we open our hearts to you. Even, Lord, as I pray this, I'm aware there may be some in the room, online, via recording, via whatever transcript may come to them, however this message may reach them in that moment, who may be saying, I don't even know if I belong to God. I don't even know if he would listen to my prayer. I don't even know if I want to belong to God. I don't even know if there is a God. And Lord, for all of them, as well as for the brothers and the sisters who have seen you and met you and know you, but who may be going through some things with you, we pray, all of us together, all who are willing, we pray this. Lord, open my heart to you. Soften my heart. If you have a message for me today, let me hear it. Let me know it. I want to hear from you. And if that's your prayer, say amen. 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 Freedom. Say it. Freedom. 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 Freedom.
You think you have it. That's why you don't say it with much conviction. But if you were a slave, you would know there's nothing like freedom. Freedom is worth more than life. Slaves were willing to die to get others free. Freedom. You think you have it, but you don't have it if God doesn't have you. There is not freedom in anyone else but God. And there is only one God. And that God, the God who says, I am, I am here. I am free. I am alive. I am able to free you. And I am aware of your cry of need. That God is named Jesus. Because salvation comes from I am. And that's what Jesus means. That's the meaning of his name. Salvation comes from the I am and from no other. And salvation is freedom. We see chains being broken on those hands. But do we see the chains that bind us? We're going to see idols in Egypt brought down by the revelation of God's wonders. But do we realize the idols that we are bowing down to day in and day out that chain us in the dark? Sometimes what God does is lead us into a place where our bondage becomes unbearable so that we wouldn't be willing to resist him anymore. But the lesson of today's lesson, the story of today's story, is also that even in that situation, there will always be people who double down on doubt and drill into their anger and plant themselves on pride. The greatest sin is idolatry. The greatest sin is pride. The greatest sin is fear. The greatest sin is doubt. The greatest sin is hatred. And those are all the same. They're all equal. You can interchange one with the other. Because when you are focused on anything other than God, it is an idol to you. And it cannot help you. It can only hinder you. And behind every idol is a false god, which means not just a lie, but a liar. Do you understand the distinction? Behind the idol is not just a lie. It's not just a myth. It's an empty space occupied by a spirit that is at war with God. But I'm going to see a victory. And who wins? God. So every spirit that is at war with God is, quite frankly, a loser. That's what they are. And they know it. And the more that you show it by your faith, the angrier they get. But be careful. You're not stronger than them. God is. But his strength is made perfect in your weakness. Freedom. You say, I want to be free from weakness. God says, you don't need to be free from weakness. You need to be free from idolatry. You say, I want to be free from problems. God says, you don't need to be free from problems. 
You need to be free from fear. You need to be free from doubt. You need to be free from lies. But you know what? We say, I can deal with fear, and sometimes I really believe in doubt, and I actually like my lies. So leave me alone about all of that and just get rid of my problems and feed my pleasure. And God says, no. I'm God and you're not, he says to us. He says to me, Courtney Hall, and Courtney Hall wrestles with that. But Courtney Hall has learned a loophole. God says all of those things, but he lets you do what you want anyway. You've learned that loophole, haven't you? Remember the cartoons? Somebody does something bad, and out of the cloud comes a lightning bolt. But God doesn't do that. In fact, sometimes the lightning bolt comes down and hits the person who's doing the thing that God asked them to do. Devout people get cancer. Devout people die in car accidents. Devout people who love the Lord get ensnared in alcoholism or drug abuse or pornography. And so what difference does it make then, we start to say in our minds. And some of us work out the rationale for why we believe one thing or why we believe another, but all of us have learned the loophole. When it comes to push to shove, I can do whatever I want. And you know what? God's not surprised. God's the one who said, I always told you that. You're free. But your choices have what? Consequences. You see, we already know, don't we? We already know. We know it all, and we're such know-it-alls, but we don't live it out until God shouts it out and calls and says, I'm trying to get a message to you. You think that you've got it made with your loophole, but I'm trying to show you that that loophole is around your neck, and it's getting pulled nice, tighter and tighter, like a noose. It's a chain. And God even says in the scriptures, by his prophets at times, you know what? I'll grab a hold of that chain and I'll drag you in line until you tow the line. And if you double down and harden your heart, then you'll find me hardening it with you. Because whatever you are going to sow, that's the crop that you are going to grow. God wants us to be free. But there's only one way, and it's his way. His way or the highway, and the highway goes right into Egypt. It goes right into slavery. It goes right into darkness. But the pathway of Christ, that leads to life. We're going to look over the next three messages, today, Friday evening, and next Sunday on Resurrection Easter Day, at the patience that is demonstrated by the faithful in God's people during this season of preparing for delivery out of enslavement in Egypt. And as we do so, at each point we're going to consider how it parallels not only the story of Jesus Christ in the week of his passion leading to his death and resurrection, but the story of our lives today. Today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 11, but I want to make a, a very um, broad summary of what leads up to it in the first 10 chapters. I do mean very broad. But just to get some key uh, distinct points, 
centered in our minds as we come to a consideration of the last plague, the last wonder, which is really the Passover. And we will look at that situation more closely on Friday. Today we talk about patient, being patient through plagues. And plagues is something we know about these days. Have you been patient during COVID? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But you know what? We didn't have much choice, and yet we could get impatient with it anyway, right? But there's other plagues plaguing our world at this time. There's plagues of division and confusion and falsehood and lies and delusion. There's plagues of war and warfare. There's plagues of economic instability. There's plagues in the environment, environmental and ecological instability. And there is a plague of anxiety and anger, of stress and frustration and discouragement and depression that is like darkness over the whole land. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because there's probably not a person in the room who hasn't felt that darkness over themselves in this season. That is not coincidence, and that is not without significance. So we're going to look at how to be patient through the process of these things by discovering how we can see God at work in them and through them. And then on Friday, we're going to talk about being patient through perils. Because there are times where the road to freedom requires you to go away where there is no way, to make a path where there is no path, or to patiently believe that while the wrath of God is wreaking havoc all around you, the grace of God is passing over you, covering you, and protecting you in the blood of the Lamb. Next Sunday on Easter, Resurrection Day, we will talk about how to patiently prevail. Because in the end, it is all about victory. God's victory. And we're going to see a victory. Amen? So, how is it that Moses ends up in Egypt? And who is Moses after all? We studied his life several years ago in a long series in this church, but most everybody, even in the world who hasn't read the Bible, is somewhat familiar with Moses. They may think he looks and sounds like Charlton Heston, but Moses is a real person. He really existed, and he really is one of the most extraordinary persons in all of human history. He was born among the slave people. So you may remember that the family of Israel, also called Jacob, had come to Egypt because they had sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. And they had really laid down the seed that ended up producing the harvest of the enslavement of all of their offspring. You see, out of their pride and their fear and their hatred towards their brother, they sold their brother into slavery, but the Lord raised their brother up as a leader. But later on, the harvest of what they had sown was borne out in all of their children. You ever think about how the choices that you make are affecting your children? If you have children, if you're going to have children, have you ever thought about how the choices that your parents made affected you? For good and for ill, our choices have consequences. So these people, the children of Israel, had come to Egypt because Joseph had become a leader in Egypt, and there was a famine going on. That's a peril that they had to be patient through. 
This past Wednesday, in the teaching that I gave in our prayer meeting, we talked about the call through it all, how the Lord called Jacob to come and meet with his son that he had thought was dead but was actually alive, a son who was resurrected, as it were. Joseph is a symbol of Jesus. And in that story, we saw that Jacob's heart was warmed, but the Lord also warned him, you're going to a place where you're going to die. The Lord had warned Abraham, your children are going to go into slavery in Egypt. The Lord knows in advance what you and I are going to go through, even when we don't. And even when he tells us, it's hard for us to believe or understand until we're in it. Until you walk into the situation, and then you face it. And so, 400 years passed. And from a time of liberation and provision... Slowly, as the children of Israel proliferated, in fact, in the early chapters of Exodus, it says there were so many of them that they were like a swarm of bugs crawling all over the land. It's the exact language that's going to be used later during the plagues to describe the lice and the flies. And that may sound offensive or grotesque, but what it's saying is in the eyes of the Egyptians, these people were inferior to them. These slaves were subhumans, and they're breeding and overpopulating, and they're like bugs all over. And the Lord said, you think my children are like bugs? Let me put bugs among your children. Let me show you what your attitude looks like in the real world. There's lots of parallels like that in the first 10 chapters. At the time, Pharaoh, who doesn't remember Joseph and doesn't care about these Jewish Hebrew people, he says, there are getting to be too many of them. We want to keep our slave labor force, but we don't want them to overpower us. We want to be large and in charge. So kill off their male children. We'll keep the girls. We can always breed or crossbreed more. That kind of offensive thinking is part of the mentality that creates an enslaving system. And they say, kill the children. Can you imagine the outcry in the spirit before the Lord at the abominable slaughtering of children all over a nation? You don't have to imagine it. We live in it. The Egyptians couldn't hear the sound of those infant boys drowning in the waters any more than you and I can hear the cries of aborted children that rises to God all over our land. And that's a statement that has nothing to do with the complexities and the emotional uh, intricacies of the decision to come to that place. It has to do with the reality that the snuffing out of life is offensive in the eyes of God. And it raises up a cry to heaven and God hears it. And out of that death of his children, he will bring in the ultimate plague the death of their children. You will put to, to death the children of God. I will put to death the children of Egypt, God said. But one child in the time when Pharaoh was putting to death little baby boys of the Hebrews survived. He was drawn out. Do you know that's what the name Moses means? Drawn out. His mother placed him in an ark, a little boat of reeds in the water, and it drifted into the court of Pharaoh, was received by one of the daughters in the court, and Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt. But ultimately, the truth was known that he was a Hebrew by birth, and he came to be identified with the people from whom he had been born, but he also became a prophet to the people among whom he had been raised. 
And he had doubters in both camps. And he had believers in both camps. And so the Lord said to him, I'm going to use you, Moses. I am calling you, I who saved you, to save my children Israel. Because their cry has reached my ears. And I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's not going to let you do what I'm asking you to do, which is set my children free. Let my people go. And he won't do it. And it will give me the opportunity to show how I am superior to every false god that Egypt worships. And it will allow me to show the people of Egypt that if they want to know the truth, if they want to be free, if they want to know the Lord of life, they can, but they won't want to. But I will also show my people that that is the very Lord God who is fighting for them. And I win, says the Lord. And ultimately, I will show all my wonders and I will set you free. Let's look at the 10 plagues, the 10 wonders. They begin with blood in the water. Consider how Pharaoh was killing the children. Drown them in the Nile. The Lord was showing them, you've filled the Nile with blood, but you don't see it, so now you'll see it. Now you'll know it. Now you'll have nothing to drink but blood. But you and I, the Lord offers the same thing to us. Both Egypt and the Hebrews are subject to these early plagues. And the Lord says to one group, you have caused bloodshed, and bloodshed will fall on you. But the Lord says to another group, you have caused bloodshed, and bloodshed will fall on you. What's the difference? One group turns away from God, and so God says, all that will be left for you is blood in the water. But another group turns towards God, and that, God, that group hears Jesus say, your sin, which was death-dealing, dealt death to me, and I received it for you, and now I give you the cup of my blood to drink, to be made pure. The very first plague of Egypt is like the very first wonder of Jesus at the wedding. Water turned to wine is water turned to blood. It's covenant sign from God, and what he's saying is, I am in charge because I'm your source. The Nile was seen as the source of life in Egypt, and for each of the plagues, there are particular Egyptian gods that are being brought into the crosshairs of the real God. And he is showing, Yahweh, the I Am, that he is superior. Kanum was the Nile source god. If the Nile is turned to blood, it should be the action of Kanum. If you make sacrifices to Kanum and the priests of Kanum come to him and do all of his rituals, you should be able to change it. And in fact, the priests show, oh, we can turn water into blood and they make their magic act. But what they can't do is they can't turn blood back into water. Hapi was the god of fish. All the fish die in the Nile. You're a people, you Filipinos among us, who know how important fish is. It's a staple of life. Imagine, quite honestly, if all the fish in the seas of the Philippine Islands died. Imagine the devastation. Imagine the economic impact. Imagine the people who depend on going out there and catching those fish. Think about it. You go to the waters, and there's fish. Who put them there? Not happy, I'm happy to say. God. And God says, you don't like these? You don't like me? You don't get my fish. 
Osiris was an Egyptian god whose body was used symbolically. The Nile was said to be his bloodstream, his circulatory system. And here God is showing you, I will show you who makes bodies. I will show you who controls blood. I will show you who is the source of life. The second plague was a plague of frogs. Probably in mind here is Hecht, goddess with a frog head. But also in all of these pestilential um, multiplications of unpleasant creatures, there is here God's commentary on how the Egyptians had looked at his people. You think my people are like a bunch of frogs. You think my people are like a bunch of bugs. I'm going to show you frogs and bugs. I'm going to multiply them till they're coming in and out of your ears. The plague of lice uses the same language of proliferation as was used about the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites. We're told that Moses is, is directed by God to scatter dust of the earth into the air, and, and out of this comes lice like dust everywhere. Instead of dust storms, it's lice storms, or storms of gnats would be another way that it could be interpreted. Geb was the Egyptian god of the dust of the earth, but he was not in charge of the dust or the lice or the flies. Kepri, the beetle-headed god who moved the sun, is targeted by the plague of flies that are so thick and swarming in such volume that they blacken out the sky. Throughout all of this, Pharaoh is being given opportunity again and again to relent, to recognize God is in charge. God is showing his displeasure with the hardness of my heart and with our enslavement of his people, but instead, Pharaoh just continues to resist the Lord. And so the plagues become more severe in their impact. Now it's not just fish dying, but all of the livestock. Apis was the sacred bull. Hathor was the fertility goddess who had the head of a bull or was sometimes symbolized entirely as a bull. And those bulls that are dying are like the false gods of Egypt dying under the victorious sword of God's mighty hand. Still, Pharaoh does not relent. And so the Lord turns from devastating the environment and creatures around them to the very people themselves. Boils, illness, plague upon them. And they could not heal themselves, even though they did all to worship Isis, the goddess of health, and Imhotep, the so-called great physician. We know that the great physician is Jesus Christ. And he who could give boils can also take them away. Thoth was the god of magic and healing. None of those gods could take away the boils. Shu and Nut, father and son. The father was the god of the wind, of air, and of calmness, and a calming breeze. Nut, his son, was the god of the sky. Neither of them could hold back the hail. Talk about lightning bolts. You know, the old cartoons make it seem as though when one person does something bad, the cloud comes over them and the lightning bolt falls. And we've already discussed, it doesn't always happen that way. And sometimes it looks like it happens opposite. But the reality is, live long enough and you will see this. People do receive punishment for their sin. There is time when the clouds do form and the lightning does fall and the hail like rocks as big as a melon, as big as a coconut, falling all over the land. But still Pharaoh hardens his heart. Still the people of Egypt fall, harden their heart. And so a plague of locusts comes. 
Nepper was the god of grain, Nepri, the goddess of grain, a couple who were in charge of harvest. Set or Seth was the god of crops and chaos. God shows that he's in charge of both by sending the chaos of a plague of locusts who eat all of the crops. Finally, the penultimate plague, darkness. Remember how I began today by reminding us that the Lord sent the darkness so that those who love the Lord could see that they live in the light. This plague does not apply equally to Israel and to Egypt. All the Israelites were living in the land of Goshen. A, that was a real place, a real district in ancient Egypt. It became a euphemism. You used to hear old grandmas say that kind of thing. Land of Goshen, it's hot today. Well, land of Goshen is a real place. It was a place where the Hebrews were. They were collected together, a ghetto, if you will, and that ghetto was in the light. The darkness didn't fall upon it, but there was darkness all over the land of Egypt. Ra was the sun god of ancient Egypt, and he was the most revered of the Egyptian pantheon. He was perceived as the greatest god, and so here, this penultimate plague is revealing that there is no god greater than the god of Israel. And he is revealing a darkness that they were already living in. And by showing his light to his beloved, he is showing them. You may think you are enslaved, but at least you're living in the day. At least you belong to the Lord. And then we come to Exodus chapter 11. It's a short chapter. It's only 10 verses. And the first one says, from the mouth of the Lord through Moses, after these nine plagues, after these nine wonders, there will be one more plague. Will you say that? One more plague. One last plague. One final plague. To reveal over all the gods of Egypt, over all the people of Egypt, over all the people of the earth, that there is only one God. And he is the God of life. In the same way that the God of light revealed the sin and depravity of Egypt through darkness, the God of life will reveal the sin and depravity of Egypt through death. But God is not causing a death. He is bringing a harvest. The angel of death that comes is a reaper. Why do you think he's called the Grim Reaper? I'm not kidding. You know that image of death in the cloak with a sickle? That's a farmer's tool. He comes to reap. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is holding the sickle and puts it into the earth, and blood flows out of the earth. Why? Because he's reaping a harvest. Like the blood of grapes, that is the fruit of what has been grown. What the angel of death is going to do is he is going to bring forth the harvest of the seeds of death that Pharaoh and Egypt have been planting for generations, for 400 years. And the God that was in view in the sights of the one true God, the false idol, was Pharaoh himself, who was considered a god, as many ancient monarchs and kings were all over the world. He was said to be the Lord of all life. And God says, 
you who have taken the title of Lord of all life, you are going to take the hit of death. Your firstborn son is going to die. And the firstborn son of everyone in Egypt, and the firstborn child of all the cattle and livestock. And the only place where this harvest will not produce life, excuse me, not produce death, but will instead produce life, is the place where there is blood, the blood of a sacrificed lamb that is made over the lintel by the sides of the door, a mark that will say, death passes over here. And that's the Passover. Now, we'll look more at that on Friday, but here's the 10 plagues together. I know this is rather small. I'll call it out for you. And as a reminder, you can find these slides online later today. The first two plagues deal with the Nile, the ultimate source of life in Egypt. The next two plagues are both with pests, and it describes God's response to how the Egyptians were looking at his people as pests, as bugs. The next two are epidemics, first an epidemic of animals and then an epidemic of humans. And then the crops, and finally, darkness and death. In other words, there's five pairs, five couples. And when you look at this, what you see is the, the ecology being destroyed, the economy being destroyed, human health being destroyed, and ultimately, darkness and death. Now, if you look in the prophets, and if you look in the book of Revelation, you will find these same things. Locusts, darkness, hailstorm, blood, plagues, a third of the rivers befouled, a third of the populace dead due to disease or famine or starvation or war. In other words, in the same way that God over and over again was speaking to Pharaoh and saying, this is what will happen, this is what will happen, do not harden your heart, soften your heart and hear me today, God is saying that to us. He wasn't kidding with them and he's not joking with us. It came upon them. Now the question is, shall it come upon you or me? It will come upon all the earth, but it will pass over those who are under the blood. And it doesn't mean that you won't face what everyone else faces. It means you won't be afraid. It means you'll be free. It means even if you die, yet will you live. So, in the time that's remaining, I want to look at these 10 verses with you in the structure of the story of the chapter. One more plague, one more opportunity for Moses to speak into Pharaoh's ear what the Lord says. And when we started this message today, we started by saying to the Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. What would have happened if Pharaoh, who was hearing God's word all the time, had actually opened his heart to receive it? But he didn't. And ultimately, God said, in that way, through the hardness of his heart, my wonders will be multiplied. The people of Israel, at each of these points in the chapter, receive some instructions. There's going to be one more plague, so now is the time to ask for silver and gold. This is a very odd thing. God is saying, there's going to be one more plague, and it's going to be the worst yet. All the firstborn of Egypt are going to die. 
Tell them that's going to happen and then go to them and say, hey, can you give me some money? Can you give me some of your gold and silver? Strange thing to ask, but there's a reason for it. Then the Lord says, listen, you're going to hear when it comes across the land, there's going to be an outcry. Once again, it's bookending where the story began. Once all of the Hebrews were crying out to the Lord, and the word outcry is used of them. They are crying out to God in the despair of their slavery. And God says, now the Egyptians are going to take up that cry. And they're going to be crying out to God in grief and mourning for the loss that has become their legacy. The very first time that that word outcry is used in the Hebrew Bible reveals something to us about its usage here. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Finally, that my wonders may be multiplied. The people of God are called to be, in the Passover, people of patience who patiently perform God's work. Why do we have to slaughter a lamb, poor little lamb? Why do we have to eat it? Why do we have to put its blood on our doors? What kind of gory grotesquery is this? Do whatever he tells you to do. That's what Mary said to the servants at the wedding about Jesus when they ran out of wine. But it's what Moses is saying to the children of Israel. Do what the Lord tells you to do, patiently, obediently, and there will be a Passover. Protection, life, a feast. Exodus 11, the first three verses, one more plague. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague. We're going to do it one more time, one more chance, and I will bring it on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he will let you go. He's not going to change his heart, but he's going to change his plan. When he lets you go, he's not going to just let you go. He's going to drive you out completely. So Moses, go and speak in the hearing of the people that each of the Hebrew people, every man and woman, is to go to their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, that they work among, that they commerce among, and ask for articles of silver and gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The word favor there is first used in the Hebrew Bible to describe how God looked upon Noah. Noah found favor in God's heart charm, delight. There was something so appealing. You know, when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to face a lot of people who don't like you just because you belong to Christ. But remember this, in a time when the Lord says to you, reach out to that person and ask for something, or go to that person and say something, God can put his favor upon you. And there is something about the life and the truth and the power of the Lord that can be very irresistible when his spirit is upon you. Moses, the man himself, was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt. The Egyptians still looked at him as one of their one-time leaders. And, of course, he was also esteemed by those in the court of the king and in the sight of all the people. So what's going on here? God is telling his people something big is about to happen. And after 400 years, now you need to get ready. You need to prepare for the Passover. You need to prepare for the Exodus. How long have you been waiting for that freedom that we were talking about? How long have you been straining against some set of chains, some dark cloud that's over you, and you think, God, when, when, when? And today, God is saying to you, get ready. Now, 
Now get ready. Get ready to move so fast that there won't be time for the bread to rise in the oven. Get ready to move so fast that you're going to have to go to people around you and say, can you give me some moving money? And they'll give it to you because I'm on the move. Get ready. Say that. Get ready. ready. Now do it. Get ready in your heart because there is a darkness coming. And you haven't seen darkness yet. You say, we've seen plagues. Maybe you've seen nine. But you haven't yet seen ten. And ten is coming. Death. Death. Death is coming to you. Get ready. You do not live forever. So prepare for the angel of death to come to you and to our world and reap a harvest. What are you sowing? Because that's what you'll be showing. If you are sowing the blood of Christ in your life, you are under the blood and you are in the Passover. But if you are outside of the blood, woe unto you, friend. Woe unto you. For this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. And that's the world. When the world is at its darkest, I will be there in the dark. They won't see me, but I am coming. And all the firstborn, the ones of strength, the inheritors, the privileged ones shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, through every rank of society, all the way down to the firstborn of the slave girl who is laboring behind the millstone, even the firstborn of the cattle, And there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. Egypt was one of the greatest superpowers the world has ever seen. But for more than 2,000 years, though it's a country of extraordinary antiquity and interest, Though it is a place peopled by precious people whom God loves, it is no power in the world. Nor, I think, shall it ever be again. Because when it had its time, it turned away. And what about us? But against any of the sons of Israel, the Lord says, a dog won't even bark. So still, so silent. Every man and beast in Israel under the blood shall be saved so that you will understand. You see, the Lord is not trying to darken and benight us. He's trying to enlighten and reveal to us. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The Lord makes a distinction between the flesh and faith. The Lord makes a distinction between the world and the kingdom. 
The Lord makes a distinction between right and wrong, between life and death, and he wants you to know it and to see it. All these your servants, Moses says. Here he is standing in the court of the greatest ruler on the face of the earth. And he's saying, all of these servants are going to come and bow down to me, says Moses. And we know from the Bible that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. We know because Moses wrote it. <laughs> well, we don't know. The tradition says that the books of Moses were written by Moses. And in the books of Moses, it says Moses was the most humble man. Maybe Joshua came in and added it. I'll tell you who said it. The Lord said it because this is God's word. The human authors were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said no one was more humble than Moses. And Moses is not being proud when he speaks that way in the court. He is being the voice of the Lord. He is being a witness. And he is saying, all these servants who now bow down to you, they will come and bow down to me. And they're going to say, get out. We've been holding you back. We want you to go. And all the people with you, they're going to be desperate to free you. And after that, says Moses, I will go out. And then he storms out. He goes out from Pharaoh in hot anger, is the way one English translation puts it. Let me tell you what it says literally. He went out with breath in his nostrils. Hot breath in his nostrils. We might say it this way. He went out with his nostrils flaring. Or he went out breathing fire. The very first time that this word for hot anger, he went out with breath in his nostrils, the very first time it's used is in the book of Genesis when God creates man. And it says, he formed human beings, men and women, and put his breath in their nostrils. I want you to do something. We're almost done, but this is worth taking this time. Use your nose. Take a deep breath in. And breathe out through your nose. It's good, right? Are you feeling stressed lately? <laughs> I'm not kidding now. Do that 10 times every day this week. When you're feeling stressed, just take a moment and breathe in and out five times in your nose. And it will calm you. <sighs> That's life. What are you breathing in there? The breath of life. Who put it there? You can't live without it. Go under the sea. Can't live without it. Go up into space. Can't live without it. No matter where you go, you can't live without it. Who gave it to you? He did. His spirit is your life. None of us would even be alive right now if it weren't for him. And Moses knows it. He's filled with the spirit of God. He's going out with the righteous wrath of God in him. It's not about anger. It's about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is breathing the breath of God and speaking the word of God and sharing the reality that God says, there are not many gods, there's only one. 
There are not many different ways to me. There's only one. There are not many different truths. There's only one. I decide right and wrong. I weigh the scales. I make a distinction. I know the truth and I know a lie. I know what's living and I know what's dead. I know who's mine and for me and with me and I know who is against me and is my enemy. The Lord makes a distinction. And the Lord says, I'm going to show you once again who I am and what I'm about. So the Lord said to Moses, <laughs> by the way, my friend, I added that. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. I think Moses must have been like, yeah, no kidding. Uh, no surprise here, right? I've got, I kind of got the picture there. Why will Pharaoh not listen? Because he made that choice, but also because God made a choice, which is I will use Pharaoh's choice to reveal my wonders so that I can multiply my wonders, so that I can multiply freedom, so that I can multiply glory, so that I can point people not only out of this slavery and into freedom, but also point them to Christ. And so Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. And that's where the chapter ends, and that's where this part of the story ends, but there's something to be said about that. Moses and Aaron are faithfully doing what God had called them to do, even though they don't know how God's going to do it. They are literally putting their life at risk, and they have to face off against the strongest superpowers in the world. But they are not going to be hard against God's command to them. They want to be soft to what the Lord is saying to them so that they can be strong in what the Lord is calling them to do. The message today is that you and I would not be like Pharaoh. What does it mean, this is a big question, I could spend lots of time on it, I'm not going to spend lots of time on it, but it's something that rises often in people's mind. What does it mean when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? That doesn't seem fair. If you look carefully through these 10 chapters that we just summarized, what you'll see is the first times that Pharaoh's heart's heart is described, he's hardening it. We are told Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hard. Only later does it say the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that's one thing. It starts with Pharaoh, and the Lord affirms what Pharaoh has chosen. That's important. Secondly, you need to know something about the Hebrew there. It doesn't just mean hardened. It means strengthened. God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because that's who God is. God is a strengthener. God is an encourager, but not for any eventuality. What God says is, I know the loophole. I've given you freedom from the beginning. It's up to you to choose, but be careful how you choose. So God gives the freedom and God gives the direction. There's life and there's death. There's lie and there's truth. There's worship and faith. There's idolatry and sin. Choose life. Choose truth. Choose me. But if you choose death, death you shall receive. In the book of Revelation, the Lord puts it this way. Let those who are doing evil and wickedness keep on doing evil and wickedness, but let those who are faithful and righteous be faithful and righteous. In other words, God says, I will strengthen you, but you get to choose what your choice is, and I will strengthen your choice. So choose wisely. He gives the test with the answers, but he is going to grade it. And some people, even though they know the answers, choose a different option. 
And over and over again, God sends trials, tests, plagues, and perils to show people you're on the wrong path. You're going the wrong way. But ultimately, if you keep drilling into doubt, fear, and idolatry, then you're going to come to the place where your heart is so hardened that even God's grace only strengthens you against him all the more. And it's not God's fault. It's our choice. The author of the book of Hebrews says, don't let your hearts be hardened today. The very people that are going to be led out of, of slavery in Egypt, when they get into the wilderness and face famine and plagues there, they're going to complain against God and stiffen their necks and harden their hearts. But the author of the book of Hebrews, in the days after Christ had come, says to you and I even today, don't harden your, your heart. Don't close your ears. Hear his voice. Believe and obey. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts become hard. They're hardened by fear, fatigue, trauma, trial, plagues, death, discouragement, depression. They're hardened by the words the people have said to us and the words that we have said. They're hardened by the sins people have committed against us, and they're hardened even more by our own sins. And sometimes, Lord, the truth is, though you've come to us and showed us and reached out to us again and again, whether we've seen it or not, whether we believe it or not, we've not received it. And so today, Lord, we ask that the forgiveness which you have already provided for us through the cross would soften our hearts even now. That the spirit of life that you already put as breath into our nostrils would fill us with the spirit of you, Lord, your Holy Spirit that you would free us from the chains of our bondage, that you would lead us to the place of vulnerability, of honesty, of tenderness, of trust, of faith, of eagerness for you. Some of us feel afraid, Lord, from this message because we think, what's gonna happen to me? And yet there's a holiness in that kind of fear. And I pray that you would keep us from shame or the conviction of condemnation, but that you would lead us into repentance and the revelation of honest, earnest confession of our sin and trusting in you. Because the truth is you do make a distinction and we know that we matter to you. You love us, Lord, and we wanna love you. I pray right now, Lord God, that each one that is praying with me live now in the room via online or via recording some future point would feel the softening touch of your strengthening hand, softening them and us in any way in which we've become hardened and idolatry, pride, sin, delusion, deception but strengthening us in every way in which we give ourselves over to the truth of your word, the life of your son, and the fullness of your spirit. 
I pray that even right now, Lord, you would break chains. Break chains of bondage. Deliverance from places of deep delusion, deep darkness, deep depression, deep confusion, deep addiction, deep desperation. Deliverance out of economic lack, Lord.